Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Let us pray. O oh, Father, we pray for the help now of Your Holy Spirit that we might understand this solemn and serious portion of this gospel. O oh, Lord, we are in chapters that are heartbreaking as we see all that is coming against our Lord Jesus. Father, give us sensitive hearts. Give us tender hearts that we might not just read this as cold theology, but that we might see this as things that are happening to Jesus, the, the man we love. Oh, Father, give us insight, give us wisdom, help us to properly read Mark and inwardly digest these words. For we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we spent uh, some time looking at this great break in the clouds that comes as Jesus sits at the Passover meal with His disciples, and He makes the connection directly between what is about to happen to Him and the fulfillment of the Passover expectation. As the storm is closing in on Jesus, as, as Judas is committed to betraying his master, as the ruling authorities are actively conspiring to put Jesus to death, we are here in the final hours of Jesus' life. Right? You understand there'll be no more sleep for Jesus and His disciples now. They'll move from the dinner to the Garden of Gethsemane to Jesus' arrest to Jesus' crucifixion. This is literally the last hours of our Lord's life. The storm is closing in. The black clouds are gathering over, and it is getting dark. By now, it's literally dark. Night has fallen, but it's spiritually dark as the forces of evil are apparently gaining boldness as they formulate their plan against our Lord. But last week we saw in that Last Supper, in this final meal that Jesus eats with His disciples, this, this great shaft of light that breaks through the darkness. You remember, it's, it's as if heaven breaks through and Jesus reveals to His disciples that his impending death is not, in reality, antithetical to His work as Messiah, as the disciples had assumed that it would be. But He explains to them that His impending death is, in reality, the vehicle by which his, this, their salvation will be secured. And the salvation of everyone who is united to Him by faith. As Jesus and His disciples sat around that table and, and ate that Passover meal that 
reminded them of, of God's redemption and salvation past. When the ancients had been brought out of Egypt, they had been delivered from their slavery. As they sat around this table and they ate this Passover meal that created a great anticipation within them of a salvation future and even greater redemption when God would finally and fully realize all His covenant promises and bring out His people in a greater exodus. As they sat around that table, Jesus said to His disciples that this was the moment in which that anticipation was coming to its glorious fulfillment. And it was coming to fulfillment in Him. As he sat around that table, Jesus made the connection, and he said to them that he is the ultimate Passover lamb, that ultimate substitute who is going to stand in the place of his people, that he would bear their death so that we might enjoy life in union and communion with God. And knowing our weakness, knowing our propensity to forget, Jesus gave to His disciples and to the church after them the Lord's Supper as a perpetual ordinance, commanding the disciples and commanding the church after them to, to do this in remembrance of, of Him so that continually we might be brought face to face with this wonderful reality of substitutionary atonement and the knowledge that it was through that broken body and that spilt blood of Jesus that we have been spared from the judgment of God. What we looked at last week as we sat with Jesus and His disciples in that upper room around that table, it was this wonderful moment of clarity that we will see the disciples continue to struggle to grasp what Jesus has said to them. But for us, Matthew's readers, what happens in that upper room is, is really the thing that causes everything else to fit into its place. Right? Jesus has told us repeatedly that death and resurrection await Him in Jerusalem, but it's in that room around that table that He gives us the key that unlocks the significance of that death that death that He has told us about, that death that is coming in just a few hours, Jesus says it's a substitutionary death. Just like that Passover lamb, He will die in our place. His blood will cover us so that we will be spared from the judgment of God. It's a, it's a beautiful moment. It's one of those moments in Scripture that's like when you when you climb a, a mountain and there's the slog up the trail and, and one foot in front of another and you go higher and higher and your legs burn and you're out of breath, but then you reach the top and suddenly this, this vista opens in front of you and you stand in awe of this beauty. Our hearts will still break. Our hearts do still break when we think of what is going to befall our beloved Jesus. But now, having been in that upper room, we have, we have seen the beautiful destination to which this hardest of roads will lead. Now we stand 
looking out on this vista and we see that in the good providence of God, the greatest evil that the world will ever see will unwittingly be the vehicle by which the greatest good humanity has ever known will come to its fulfillment. It's beautiful. The clouds part and the shaft of light descends. For a moment, the evil dissipates and we see heaven, but now the clouds close back in. And as Jesus and His disciples leave that secret upper room, and they move out to the Mount of Olives. Jesus turns to His disciples. He turns to these men, these men who've been with Him day in and day out for three years by this point, these men who, who love Him, these men who know Him, these men who, who may well care about Him more than anyone else on the face of the earth at this point. Jesus turns to these men who have just sat in that room and who have dipped in that common bowl in an act of what someone has once called a covenant of friendship. Jesus turns to them now, out of that room, now on the Mount of Olives, and He says that what is about to happen to Him is going to cause every single one of them to fall away. He says to them that, what is about to happen, it will be like when, when the shepherd is, is struck, when the shepherd is attacked, the flock will, will scatter. Now, I can't imagine just how deeply these words must have cut the disciples. How could Jesus say such a thing? And they've been with Him now through thick and thin. They stood with Him as He has received the adoration of the crowds. But they've also stood by His side as He has faced the vitriol of His enemies. How could Jesus question their loyalty? Even for all of their misunderstanding and their confusion about what Jesus has said to them on the road from Caesarea Philippi about all that is going to happen in Jerusalem despite those predictions that have run so counter to their understanding of who the Messiah would be and what the Messiah would do, still they are with Him. For all of their confusion, they know enough about Jesus that they're still there with Him now. They've, they've stood with Him in the temple. As He debated the leaders of Pharisaic Judaism, and won that debate, and in doing so, utterly humiliated them. And the disciples have stood with Jesus, and in doing so, they have publicly aligned themselves with them, and they have made enemies of the most powerful men in this city. They've stood with Jesus. Surely by now, they have the track record. They are they're willing to bear the reproach of following Jesus. And so, how could Jesus now say to them that they're all about to fall away? How could Jesus now say to them that they would forsake Him for whom they have given up so much? 
How could Jesus say to them that like sheep without a shepherd, they would just scatter into the dark of the night? Surely now more than ever, these disciples are actually equipped to stand with Jesus. There have been moments where their misunderstanding about who Jesus is and what Jesus has come to do has been so great that, that we have wondered that they are actually still with Him. Especially on that road from Caesarea Philippi, when Jesus has repeatedly told them that what awaits Him in Jerusalem is not glory, but instead death, and they just have not known what to do with that. But still they went with Him. They didn't back off. They didn't go back to their homes. They didn't say, this isn't what we signed up for. They didn't, they didn't fall away. Right? There have been times when it would have made sense for them to fall away. But, but now, having just received this explanation of the Passover, and having heard Jesus tell them how, how the great the Passover is this great anticipation of this greater salvation yet to come that is being fulfilled in Him in the breaking of His body and the spilling of His blood. Surely now, more than ever, these disciples are equipped theologically, and they are ready to stand with Him and bear witness to this great redemption that Jesus has said is about to come. How can Jesus say this to them? But I can hardly imagine just how much it would have hurt them to hear these words come out of Jesus' mouth. I think we can understand their protestations. Peter, of course, takes the lead, as he's prone to do. But this time, instead of standing as the spokesman for the disciples, Peter throws his friends under the bus. And he says to Jesus, well, they all might fall away, but not me. I will never fall away. And then in response to Jesus' prophecy that by the time the rooster crowed, Peter would, not, would deny Jesus not just once but three times, Peter responds with the most emphatic statement of loyalty that a man could ever give. And he says, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. But it's not just Peter. All of them, Matthew tells us, said the, the same thing in response to Jesus' prediction that they'll fall away. All of them protest that they will stand with Jesus even unto to death. In one sense, it's a, it's a tremendously poignant moment. It's a moving moment. Right? We could we could run the movie in our heads. In the dark of this hillside, the lights of Jerusalem and the temple in the background, these men, perhaps in turn, all swear loyalty to, to Jesus. Knowing all that is going on in the background, seeing the gathering storm. It's a moving picture as every one of these disciples steps up and in the strongest possible terms professes their resolution to stick with Jesus regardless of what may befall them. But as noble as their intentions are, Jesus knows that 
what he has, what he is about to face, he, he will face alone, and he has to face alone. His prediction, you understand that they'll fall away, is not here a challenge laid down to elicit their professions of loyalty. Right? This isn't Jesus calling their bluff here. This isn't Jesus giving them a test just to see how committed to Him they are. What Jesus is doing is He's giving them a prophetic pronouncement about what is about to happen in these next few hours. And we'll go on and see that what Jesus says is true, right? These disciples will scatter as Jesus is arrested in the garden. And while Peter will show a tremendous fortitude that will take him into the very cord of the high priest's palace, apparently with John as well. These men showing incredible bravery, going into the very headquarters of the conspirator, standing just outside the very room in which Jesus is on trial, even Peter will fall at the last. And his lead boast of loyalty will sting all the more as he falls more dramatically than the other disciples, not just fading into the night, but standing and denying Jesus before his accusers. What Jesus is doing here is he's not eliciting a challenge. He's telling them what is about to happen, because he knows what's about to happen. And he, and he tells them this because he loves them. Right, this, is, this is an act of pastoral care. Jesus loves these men. He, he knows that the next few hours are going to be tremendously confusing and troubling and, and frightening. Jesus knows that what these disciples will see happen to Him will shake them to their core. But He also knows that seeing their own reaction. And seeing their own inability to stand in the time of testing will shock them, and they will be brought to a position where they will just not know what it means. What it means for their future, especially their future within the kingdom of, of Christ. It's one of the reasons why it's so important that the word with which Jesus greets the disciples in their locked upper room after His resurrection is is peace. The first thing that Jesus says to them, He comes to that locked upper room and comes into it, and they're afraid. They're afraid because they know they've made enemies of the most powerful men in Judaism, and they don't know what it means. They're there, the gospel writer tells, because of their fear of retribution, and Jesus comes in and He says to them, peace. Right? It's, it's what they needed. It was an assurance that regardless of what might be happening outside of the room here, there's peace. But maybe more importantly, it is an assurance to them in that room that despite their fleeing, their denial of Jesus was not the unforgivable sin, and there's still peace to be found in Him. It's, it's what Jesus does in that upper room is essentially, I think, what He's doing here by giving them this forewarning. He's saying to them, listen, disciples, I know who you are. I'm under no delusions as to who you are, and I know your weakness. 
and I know your frailty. It's as if he comes to them and he says that, I, I know my disciples. And I know that my disciples are bruised reeds. They have an inherent weakness in them. He says, I know that my disciples are faintly burning wicks. They are frail and fragile. But yet Jesus is saying to his disciples here in the Mount of Olives, that just as Isaiah had said of him so many years before, he says, I will not break you, bruised reeds. I will not extinguish you, faintly burning wicks. I know what's in you, he says, and I know what lies ahead of you, and I know what you will do, but I, I love you. What Jesus is doing is assuring his disciples, he's assuring us that he will never leave us nor forsake us. Even when our faith falters, even when we cannot grasp the goodness of God in the providences that we experience, even when we can barely see through the darkness to see God with us, this word that Jesus gives to his disciples comes and reminds us that he knows us. He knows our weakness. He knows our frailty. He knows how prone we are to wander, how prone we are to leave the God we love. And yet he says, I will not leave you. To these disciples who will indeed flee away from Jesus when association with him looks like it will come at the ultimate cost, even to, to Peter who will outright deny Jesus before men, to them, Jesus says, to, to us, Jesus says that he still loves us, knowing our faults and our failings, still he's Emmanuel, still he's God with us. Right? That's the significance of what Jesus says to his disciples in verse 32, isn't it? Verse 32, Jesus tells these men that soon they'll, they'll all abandon him, but then he falls us up with verse 32, which apparently the disciples don't even notice. So they make no reference to it. But he says in verse 32, after I am raised up, I will go before you to, to Galilee. What does that mean? And what's that got to do with anything that we are talking about? Well, it's a, it's a reference to, to John 21, isn't it? It's the third appearance of Christ to his disciples after the resurrection. You remember the, the scene. The disciples have returned to Galilee. Jesus has appeared to them twice in the locked upper room in Jerusalem, and it seems that, that they had been assured by what he had said to them, and, and so they're no longer cowering, afraid of, of retribution from the authorities, and they've gone home. They've gone back to Galilee. But it, it seems, though, that they're still a little uncertain as to what life will look like on the side of the resurrection. Remember, none of this is what they thought it would be. And so they're home, they're in Galilee, but they're unsure what to do, and so they go out fishing. Right, John 21, verse 3, it, it seems almost like the overhearing of, almost of men who are bored. They just don't quite know what to do. So Simon Peter says to the disciples, well, I'm going out fishing. And the other disciple said to him, we will go with you. It seems to be just something they do in, in the moment, and they go out into the Sea of Galilee. And you remember, Jesus comes, and he stands on the shore, and he makes a fire, and he cooks breakfast for them. 
what an odd thing to do. But you understand it's an act of tender care. It's an act of love to these disciples who are about to abandon Jesus. Jesus comes to them on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and He literally provides their daily bread for them. It was an assurance that despite their denial of Him, despite their scattering, yet He was still there. And He loves and He cares for them. And it is there, you remember, around that charcoal fire on the shore of the Sea of Galilee that Peter is restored. It's around a charcoal fire in the courtyard of the high priest that Peter will deny his Lord three times. And it is around a charcoal fire on the shore of the Sea of Galilee that Jesus will restore Peter three times. It couldn't be more movingly symbolic as Jesus, knowing Peter's profound weakness, restores him and commissions him to minister to the church. But as pastorally significant as this is, you understand that this is not primarily about Jesus' disciples. It's about Jesus. With what Jesus says to His disciples here, it is clear that what He has to face from this point on, He will face alone. In Psalm 41, verse 9, David wrote, "'Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me.'" It's one of those verses in Scripture in which David wrote far more than he ever could have known, because that's what's being fulfilled here. These close friends who have just eaten the bread of Passover with Jesus, who have eaten His bread, who have dipped in the bowl with Him in this, in this act of covenant friendship, these disciples, every one of them, will lift their heel against Jesus as they abandon Him. Right? In John 13, Jesus will specifically apply this to Judas, but really we have to understand that this applies to all of the disciples. Right? That, that lifting the heel against someone is a, is a symbol of betrayal. And as these disciples will flee into the night, they, they're betraying His friendship. They're, they're, they're turning their backs on the one that they have literally just professed to love. These men who here swear their loyalty to Jesus will break trust with Him. They'll lift their heel against them as they scatter from Him. And Jesus is saying to His disciples here that it, He knows that this will happen, and He knows that it had to be this way. Jesus has to walk a lonely road from this point on. He had to do it because it's the fulfillment of Scripture. It's the fulfillment of the psalm. It's the fulfillment of Isaiah 53. As the prophet speaks about Jesus, referred to there as the servant of the Lord, he was despised and rejected by men, all men, even his friends, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, all men, his friends, will hide their faces. He was despised even by his friends, and we esteemed him not. Or later on in that same chapter, Isaiah will write, We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
You see, as Jesus stood on this Mount of Olives, He knew that His hour had come. That the hour had come for Him to do His redemptive work. You remember, at His birth, the angel had said to Joseph, you'll call Him Jesus because He will save His people from their sins. And and Jesus knows that now is the time. Now the hour has come. Now this is the moment to which his whole life was leading. And as Jesus gazed into that growing darkness, he knew that what lay before him was a profound loneliness. What he was about to do, he must do alone. Alone he must stand before the high priest and face that humiliation of a, of a jumped up trial. Alone he must go before Pilate and face that injustice. Alone he must must stand ultimately before the heavenly tribunal and be reckoned guilty for the sins of his people. And alone he must bear the wrath of God against our sins. This redemption is something that only He can accomplish. This cup is one that only He can drink. And the reason is that in order for Him to put away sin, He must experience the fullness of sin. You see, sin separates. Its fundamental nature is division. We saw it as soon as sin entered into the world, didn't we? The sin, as humanity rebelled against God and broke that law in the garden, immediately God and humanity were separated. Here was Adam who used to walk in the cool of the day with God, but who was now cowering before God, who sought to hide from God, divided from God because of his sin. Here is Adam and Eve, whom God had made to be two halves of a whole, Adam incomplete until he found his his wife, his helper, his completer, literally his other half. But as soon as sin enters into the world, the man turns on his wife and he blames her for his sin. It's something we see throughout Scripture. It's something we know in our lives. It's a fundamental tenet of our faith that in our sin we are separated from God, even positioned over and against God as rebels and insurgents against His sovereign rights. And we know just from our own experience how sin separates us from one another, how sin comes in and it breaks down relationships and it isolates us And it prevents us from truly knowing and trusting and loving one another. And so, in order for Jesus to put that all away, in order for Jesus to restore that vertical relationship of a sinful humanity and a holy God, in order for Jesus to restore that horizontal relationship of sinful human and sinful human, He had to bear the totality of that sin. Martin Luther once said that as Jesus stood substitute for us, He became the greatest sinner the world had ever seen, as all of our guilt was credited to Him. But what we see here 
is that as Jesus went to that cross, He also became the greatest sinned against that the world has ever seen. All of the wretchedness and the division and the betrayal and the hurt and the pain of sin unleashed and poured out upon Him. And He did it all because He loves His Father, and He loves you. The writer to the Hebrews writes that Jesus endured the cross, and He despised its shame, part of which was the abandonment of His disciples. He despised its shame for the joy that was set before Him. As Jesus looked into the storm, as He sees the suffering and the sorrow that awaits Him, He presses on because He knows that this is the only way that you can be saved from your sin, that this is the only way that you can be reconciled to God, that this is the only way that God can be glorified in the redemption of His people, and this is the only way that you can be brought from the living death of the slavery to your sin and brought out into the true promised land of light and life in fellowship with God. The storm is growing darker. The forces of evil are getting bolder. The disciples are growing weaker, but yet Jesus is resolved to press on to save His people. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we are amazed at how You love sinful creatures like us. Oh Lord, as we look in the mirror of Your law, we see how far we fall short. Even, Lord, if we just look at ourselves, we see our weaknesses, and we see our wretchedness, and we see our unloveliness. But Father, as we look at our Lord in these last few hours of His life, we see His supreme loveliness. He who loved us to the point of going to that cross to bear all of our sin, that we might be set free. There are no words that can adequately express our adoration of our King Jesus. Oh, Father, we pray that you would continue to help us to lay a more firm grasp on these truths, to understand more deeply the love of God for us, to understand more profoundly the depths of our sin, that our joy in Christ might grow that it might be infectious, that we might be eager to tell others about it, and that we might run, as it were, to church on the Lord's day to join with God's people in giving praise to this altogether lovely God. Oh, Father, bless us, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.